The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Scott Black Johnston during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is Dr. Black Johnston. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds so that as your scripture is read and your word is proclaimed, we might hear with joy what it is that you are saying to us this day. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This fall here at Fifth Avenue Church, we have been studying together the human heart. We've been assessing our souls. We've asked, what are the instincts and impulses that guide us? And this has been humbling work. In taking inventory of our approach to life, we've come face to face with dimensions of our heart that are not so healthy. We've, we've thrown a few tantrums. I don't want to let that go. It may, may not be pretty, but that's my anger, my self-righteousness, my late-night fear, my self-centered pursuit of happiness. And then along comes God. God, the Bible tells us, wants all of us, body, mind, and soul, God wants to clean the gunk out of our hearts, and then the Holy One wants to put in place better loves, higher loves. Really? How does God do that? Today, in the eighth sermon in this series, our attention turns to a command that Jesus issues to his followers. Last week, Jesus issued a command encouraging us to love our neighbors. That, we acknowledged, could be challenging. But this week, he jumps off the deacon bend. In the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus is laying out his core message, he looks straight at his followers and says, love your enemies. Whoa. Is that wise? Is that even possible? Listen now for God's word to you as it echoes to us from the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, beginning with the 43rd verse. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? 
Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Do you have an enemy list? Do you have a nemesis, a rival, an ex? whose mere mention of their name makes you see red. President Richard Nixon infamously had a written out enemy list. Other politicians, Clinton, Obama, Trump, have been rumored to have enemy lists. What about you? I suspect most people have someone that they would prefer to never see again, ever. I suspect that most of us have someone who, if ill fortune were to occur, if, if a piano were to fall from the sky, setting them free from this mortal coil, we would, we would not shed a tear. We might even smile just a little. <laughs> Thanks to Dave Roberson, this past week, I read the children's book, Enemy Pie by Derek Munson. The book is narrated by a young boy who is enjoying a fabulous summer. His sister is away at camp. His father has built him a treehouse. He's on the best baseball team in town. Life is good. Then another boy named Jeremy Ross moves to town. Jeremy Ross laughs at the narrator when he strikes out in a baseball game. Jeremy Ross invites other children, but not the narrator, over to play on his trampoline. The book continues. Jeremy Ross was the one and only person on my enemy list. I never even had an enemy list until he moved to the neighborhood, but as soon as he came along, I needed one. I hung it up in my treehouse where Jeremy Ross was not allowed to go. We develop enemies early. From the sea of other children around us at school, there emerge rivals, kids who are, are better at us at sports or who laugh at us in the classroom, who, who threaten our special friendships, who encroach on territory we have carved out for ourselves. Our, our, our first enemies are those who, intentionally or not, step on our egos, who make us feel small, who take away things we believe belong exclusively to us. That feeling, I think, never entirely goes away, although over the years, enemies start to threaten more than our egos. In high school, I was convinced that the kids from St. Francis Prep were enemies. Someone, it was rumored, from their football team was bringing a chain to our homecoming football game. This humped the ante. The kids in, in my school's hallway started talking about what weapons they might bring to the big game. The St. Francis Saints <coughs> weren't just rivals. This was enmity, undergirded 
by the threat of violence. It's uncanny when you think about it how the microcosm of high school mirrors the wider world. Grievances are listed, battle lines are drawn, armaments are gathered, threats are made. India versus Pakistan, North versus South Korea, the United States versus Iran. As we grow up, we're told that there are rival countries who want to bring chains to the big game. There are entire nations, some say, who hate us. Now this is, of course, only partially true. I remember in college listening to Sting's song, Russians. In the midst of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, Sting has a funny experience. He's visiting a friend, he's drinking a beer, and they are watching together the Russian language version of Sesame Street on a pirated television link. And, And after that experience, Sting sat down and wrote these words. We share the same biology, regardless of ideology. But what might save us, me and you, is if the Russians love their children too. Sting suggests that that nations at odds with each other, aiming terribly destructive missiles at each other, also have so much in common. We share the human capacity for love and hope. We want good things for our children. And I think Sting is right. These commonalities are important. But sadly, this recognition doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't make enmity vanish. Pointing to shared humanity doesn't magically wash away ideological divides historical wounds, and the never-ending struggle for power and control that turn nation against nation and people against people. Enemies are not a figment of our imagination. They are real. There are people in this world who wish you ill, who would smile just a little, if a falling piano left you a grease spot on the sidewalk. In the seventh grade, I was bullied. I don't know why, but a tough kid named Ricky chose me as the target for his daily wrath. He called me nasty, homophobic names. He he would slug me on the shoulder while I was standing at the urinal. His favorite thing to do, though, in an era before overstuffed backpacks, was to slap the books out of my hands when I was walking down the hall, my notes, my class texts, pens and pencils sprawling everywhere. I was afraid and ashamed. More than a few times I came home from school in tears. My parents, God bless them, did not know what to do. My father suggested that I had somehow brought this violence on myself. Blame the victim, never a good pivot. I wish I had a neat way to end this story. 
but I don't. Between the seventh and eighth grade, I grew. I worked on a farm. I was suddenly over six feet tall. I was pretty strong. And Ricky and his cohort decided to leave me alone. Then a couple of years later, I would learn from my mother that Ricky's father had been arrested for domestic abuse. I wasn't sure how to process this. I felt numb. I knew I was supposed to feel compassion for Ricky, but instead I felt like he deserved it. I felt like Ricky, who dispensed so much pain and humiliation to other kids in the hallways and the bathrooms of the school, deserved to come from a family like that. My response didn't make rational sense. I'm, I'm not ethically proud of it, but there you have it. Ricky was my enemy. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus delivers the Sermon on the Mount, a sweeping speech that sketches God's vision for the world. In it, he offers the Beatitudes, a series of statements regarding those who God is blessing, will bless. And it's a surprising list. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You sure about that, Jesus? It's a delirious, upside-down list. People we would typically call challenged or, or disadvantaged or out-and-out out cursed, Jesus names blessed. Christ flips the ethical universe on its head. This, he says, is the way of God. Many of the things that are near and dear to our hearts, things like power and control and living a life free from any sort of suffering, are actually things that separate us from God, that keep us from living holy lives, that prevent us from seeing the truth in the world. Having finished this list of unconventional blessings, the Beatitudes, Jesus then slips in one last and arguably most upsetting pronouncement. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute. Honestly, anyone who thinks that following Christ is a tame affair needs to reread Matthew 5. The words that Christ speaks on that Galilean hillside tend to hit people as either A, naive in the extreme, or B, wildly dangerous. Love your enemies? It's impossible. It's unwise. Love actual enemies, the ones who in the past have done you harm, the ones who would like to do you harm in the future, the personal tormentors, the international terrorists, the political foes whose ideas you believe threaten the life of this planet and the livelihoods of those you care deeply about. Love them? Pray for those who persecute you, you have 
got to be kidding. Nope, says Jesus, not kidding. If you're looking for a conventional life, go ahead, hang on to your hate. Discipleship's not easy, it really isn't. And then as we search for some wiggle room in his words through which our, our frightened egos might squeeze away, he pounds the nail home. I am calling for you to be perfect. Perfect. Like God is perfect. Be perfect. Perfection is the goal of this? Please. No wonder Christianity has millions, hundreds of millions of hangers-on, but such a small number of committed adherents, saints. Motivational theorists suggest that, that people take small, attainable steps in order to move toward a larger goal. Focus on healthy calorie intake for a day, for, for, for one meal at a time, one day at a time, and give yourself a cheat meal every now and again. Be realistic. Be kind to yourself. Piffle, says Jesus. Enough self-help drivel. God wants perfection. Does the high bar dissuade you? It scares me. My first thought is, I can't do perfection. Nobody can do perfection, right? That's kind of written into the definition of the word. Curiously, that's what draws me closer to this conversation. What does Jesus really have in mind here? What exactly does perfection look like? Why would Jesus hold up an impossible standard? I want to explore four answers to this question with you this morning. Four answers that explain why Jesus lifts up this daunting benchmark. Love your enemies. Reason number one, we should love our enemies. Because we are fickle. The logic here goes like this. The world changes the circumstances that foster enmity change, we change. We've all spent time at some point in our lives in a history class studying the American Revolution or World War II or the war in Vietnam. In these studies, we immerse ourselves in the rhetoric of enmity. We take note of rising tensions, of, of vicious sneak attacks, of protracted battles, of betrayals and atrocities and hatred that flows when, when two nations throw themselves against each other with sword and cannon and missile. We number the dead, we count the losses, and then inevitably we step back. We emerge from our time machine experience and we marvel that, that here in, in the 21st century, we are actually on friendly terms with, with the British, with, with Germany and Japan and Italy, with Vietnam. How is it possible? The simple answer, of course, is 
that things change. Political leaders change, economic factors leading to conflict change, the world changes, hate doesn't last forever. Bitter enemies can actually become allies. This is true in a geopolitical sense, but, but it's also true in an interpersonal sense. The person on the other side of the table, at work, in the next desk, at school, on, on the other side of the bed, may seem to us an enemy. We may feel hatred for that person, burning hatred. We're such passionate beings. This is our marvelous and awful burden. In any given moment, our, our hearts can be convinced that, that our anger, our, our feeling of persecution, and, and even our sense of betrayal will last forever. This, we tell ourselves, this is the real deal. I will never back down. Although, of course, this is not always or even mostly true. We all tell stories about people whom we initially disliked, some quite intensely, workplace rivals, jerks at school, enemies down the block, who end up becoming close friends. Many of us have gone from being angry at someone to a loving embrace of that same person in just the span of a couple of minutes. When the rhetoric changes, when we learn some new fact, when we just plain calm down, we can change. This explains in part why Jesus' command to pray for those who persecute us is so important. He, he asks us to view our rivals from the posture of prayer, from a place where passions run toward love, where forgiveness abounds and where humility requires us to consider the possibility that we just might, we just might actually be wrong. In recent days, news sources have been reporting on mass protests in Beirut, Lebanon. The street protests in Lebanon resemble other outpourings of anger right now in places like Chile and Ecuador. There are clever, handwritten signs at the protests and profanity-laced chants calling for the resignation in Lebanon of all current politicians and demanding economic reform. On Wednesday of this past week, Elian Jabor drove slowly alongside one of these angry protests when the crowd swerved and engulfed her car. Calmly, she rolled down the window and informed the nearest protesters that her son, a toddler in his car seat, was frightened by their loud and abrasive chants. Immediately, the protesters paused. Someone suggested that they start singing a different song, a song that the toddler would know. They all began to sing Baby Shark. You know that. Baby Shark, do, 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 do. Check out the online video, it'll put a smile on your face. It's also a reminder though, that the human heart has the capacity to check itself, to consider whether its current response is appropriate, to weigh its rhetoric and its passions, and to change course. Reason number one, we should love our enemies, 
Because we are fickle. Reason number two, that we should love our enemies because the alternative, hatred, will eat us alive. We all know this. Holding on to anger is not a spiritually healthy thing. Even if your anger is justified, even if you decide that you never want to see some offensive or abusive person again, God let, asks you, pleads with you, to let go of that anger and hatred. God asks us, in, in the words of Martin Luther King Jr., to remember that within the best of us there is some evil, and within the worst of us there is some good. Sometimes we worry, though, that, that if we give up our anger, if we give up our hatred, we're, we're losing something, something strong about us, something admirable. Does loving my enemies require that I abandon my convictions and my self-esteem? Again, Dr. King is helpful here. He reminds us that Jesus does not say, like your enemy. You do not have to like the political positions she espouses. You do not have to like the lies that he tells. Jesus never asks you to set your convictions aside, your sense of right and wrong, your hope for a healthy future, your desire to be free from past hurts, to develop relationships built on mutuality, respect, and love. You don't have to give up your core beliefs. All you have to do is give up the one thing that really wants to keep its claws in your heart, hatred. In a strange and sick way, hatred keeps us in relationship with those who have hurt us. To let hatred go, to be truly free, we have to turn to love. We have to be willing to drop to our knees and pray that goodness will win that goodness will fall even on our enemies like spring rain, then and only then will we be truly free when we've handed our enemies over to God's life-changing love. Reason number two that we should pray for our enemies because the alternative, living with hatred, will lead us alive. Reason number three, that we should love our enemies because ideas and people are not the same thing. Ideas and people are not the same thing. Too often in this world, we lump ideas and people together. Calling people who don't agree with your politics deplorable, Clinton, or human scum, Trump, is not, I think, a wise political move. It also fails to appreciate the complex relationship that we have with ideas and movements within our culture. As our society confronts challenges, ideas are surfaced that, that motivate us or perplex us or repel us. And as that happens, we all try different ideas on for size. Everyone in this room, at some point in their life, has lived with a really bad idea setting their moral compass. Some of us are clinging to bad ideas like that even right now. 
Most of us, though, are trying to figure out where we stand in relationship to the complicated river of ideas and movements riffling through our nation and our communities. Sarah Silverman gets this. An R-rated comedian and the chirpy voice behind the animated character Vanellope von Schweetz in Disney's hit Wreck-It Ralph, Silverman has been on an interesting journey. After the 2016 election, Silverman, a self-described political progressive, decided to get serious about encountering Americans with whom she disagreed. Her goal was not as has been the case with other comedians. Her goal was not to make these individuals look ridiculous. Her goal was to pursue understanding without abandoning her own principles. The series, aptly entitled, I Love You, America, is Sarah's foul-mouthed but genuinely humble attempt to engage across partisan religious and cultural fault lines. I Love You America works, I think, because it refuses to depict other people as caricatures, as the physical embodiment of ideas and prejudices that I imagine they hold. As Albert Brooks writes in his book, Love Your Enemies, to condemn another person is suboptimal because you will never persuade somebody else that what you're doing is anything more than character assassination. Again, Dr. King gives helpful insight. Love, King says, is not a sentimental thing. It is the refusal to defeat any individual. When you rise to the next level of love, says King, of its great beauty and power, you seek only to defeat evil systems. King focused his ire on systems over individuals. He urged people of faith to remember the story that we're in. We belong to a story in which great injustices are met by a powerful and merciful God. It's a story in which no one person has a corner on goodness. It's a story in which hearts are changed and some of the most unlikely people in this story end up being emissaries of truth. Reason number three, we should love our enemies because ideas and people are not the same thing. Finally, reason number four that we should love our enemies. Because God really is out to save the whole world. Without question, loving your enemy, a true makes-you-grind-your-teeth enemy, is a huge challenge. And curiously, in today's text, Jesus does not downplay this difficulty. If anything, he inflates it. Did you hear what he said? Jesus explains, this is, after all, the sort of thing God does every day. That's all you need to do, Jesus winks at the disciples. Be like God. 
great. <laughs> Every day, God looks at humankind messed up, battling, lying, cheating, angry, fighting humankind and loves us. To love your enemy, says Jesus, is to yearn for the redemption of all. That, says Jesus, is what perfection looks like. Do you have a picture in your head of what a perfect day looks like? According to Jesus, God does. To be perfect is to wake up and to love those who, by definition, are unlovable. It's to love those who are deplorable, to love human scum. Another word for this, of course, is grace. None of us deserves this sort of love. But all of us, Jesus continues, ought to commit ourselves to spreading this sort of love around. We all ought to aim for perfection. Now, what does that look like? In the children's book, Enemy Pie, the main character tells his dad about his new enemy, Jeremy Ross. I know what to do, his dad responds. And then pulling a, a faded cookbook off the shelf, he retrieves a yellowed recipe card from its pages. This, he says, this is the recipe for enemy pie. Our narrator gets excited. What does enemy pie do? What goes into enemy pie? It must be nasty. I can't tell you, says his father. It's a top secret recipe. All I can say is this. Enemy pie is the fastest way to get rid of enemies. As the dad begins cooking in the kitchen, the boy's imagination runs wild. The pie is smelling actually pretty good, but he trusts that it has secret powers. Does it make your enemy's hair fall out? Does it give them bad breath? Pulling the amazing-looking pie to the oven, the father sits his son down and speaks to him in a quiet voice. Now, son, there's one part of enemy pie that I, I can't do. In order for this to work, you need to spend one day with your enemy. Even worse, you need to be nice to him. It's not easy, but that's the only way that enemy pie can work. Are you sure you want to go through with this? And is eager to rid himself of his only enemy, the boy agrees. He, he bikes over to the home of Jeremy Ross and asks if he wants to play. You, you've probably guessed where this is going. The boys have a fun time together. Each learns that there is more to the other than he imagined. And at the end of the day, they sit down and share a piece of pie, homemade pie. And bite by delicious bite, our narrator realizes he has just lost his best enemy. Is loving your enemy that simple? Easy as pie? Actually, sometimes it is. Sometimes all it takes to lose an enemy 
is to see your rival as human, to see them as worth regarding, to see them as bigger than the caricatures our minds have drawn, to see their challenges and to appreciate the place from which they have come, the homes in which they were raised, to listen to their story, all while sharing a piece of pie, while enjoying together a slice of grace. And grace like this, the good book tells us, lies the hope of the world. Grace really is a game changer. It upends the normal rules of engagement. It changes us, it changes others, it frees us from everlasting spirals of anger and revenge. It opens us to an elusive possibility, peace. Peace with our enemies, peace within our own broken hearts. This is the work to which Christ calls us. This is the path to salvation. It's a hard trek. Of course it is. No one expects the road to perfection to be easy. Reason number four, we should love our enemies. Because God really is out to save the whole wide world. Go from this place, aim high, be perfect, trusting in the love of God, in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and clinging to one another in the power and solidarity of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and provided a message of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you are in New York City, we invite you to visit our historic church and join us for worship. You will find our address, worship calendar, and other information on our website, fapc.org. If you would like to help support this audio ministry, please text the dollar amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646 491 8331. Again, that is the amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons to 646 491 8331. Thank you and God bless.